Jesus, that's why we are here. Because of what we believe. Because you are who you say you are. And I pray that you would open our hearts and minds, everything to you, to see how truly awesome and a great God that you are. And that we belong to you through Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. We're doing a several two-week series throughout the summer. This is one of those. Uh, hoping that as people kind of come and go with vacations and stuff, they'll be able to maybe catch a couple in a row and know what's going on. We can piece it together. And uh, this one, uh, this one has a little bit of what could be considered controversy. I'm hoping to stay away from that, but as soon as you touch on it, you kind of get in the mix of that, and we're talking about God and government. Uh, what I'd like to do is I'd like to start by just quickly uh, going back and covering what we talked about last week, just a quick review, and then clarifying something that was said. I, I made the case last week that I'm convinced there's political discourse in our country that has us utterly divided. Easy this week to just find a a softball field in Virginia to highlight that fact. You you could go back and find all kinds of things, but this week shows up. And and here's the thing. This kind of division that's happening in our world is starting to come into the church, too. It's starting to impact us. And um, from what I can tell, it's not the picture of what God had in mind. We looked at Ephesians 4. Chapter 3 last week, it said the picture that God gives for the church is that we would be united, that we would have a bond of peace with each other, and that the scriptures support this idea throughout. And you can look at that and you go like, how is that possible? There's no way for us to agree on everything. I didn't have time last week, but I'm going to take the time this week. I want to read the verses after this to show you that he's talking about big ideas that he wants us to find a sense of unity on. This is verse four. There is one body and one spirit, just as we were called to one hope when you were called. So there's the body of Christ. He wants us to be one on on, on that idea. One in spirit, have one hope. Verse five, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. These are big ideas that he's rallying about. Verse six, one God and father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Saying, listen, If you can find a sense of unity on these big ideas, then then you can make it through. You can disagree on all kinds of other things, but it won't destroy the relationship, the connection that you have, your ability to be on the same page together. And, And so we looked at how that's happening, and we thought, hmm, maybe we could take that idea in the scriptures and find some big ideas with government and God. And that that if we could find some big ideas to rally around, then we could disagree on all kinds of policies and a lot of political kind of stuff, but at least we would have something in common. Um, So here's what we did. Uh, The first thing we did was I I made the case that I'm convinced in the scriptures that God is pro-government, that ultimately what he wants to see is order happen, And, and you can find where God would prefer bad leadership over no leadership. He would prefer a bad king, a terrible leader, over anarchy because he loves order. And so uh, we made that case for how God has this idea that the world will be ordered, okay? And then the second idea that we stepped on was what's best for people is what's best. 
It's this idea that if we, if we can do what's best for people, wouldn't we all do that? And, and our arguments are made, even though they're different at times, from a place that says, I want what's best for people. And we said this, listen, in the disagreements that we have with each other, if you could identify that what they're arguing for is order and that they believe what's best for people is what they're arguing for, that's the same as you. You might not agree with anything that they say, but at least you can agree that they're arguing for order and that they're looking for something that's the best. As soon as you can convince yourself that they have evil motives, it's not, it doesn't take long for you to call names, to demean them, to reject them, and end up divided. And, and it was sad for me last week to run into several of you who told me that that's exactly what's happening with your friends and family members, where this division, the people that you count on the most are so divided, they're not even speaking with each other. Now, um, that's what we want to deal with because I'm convinced the church has a different mission. We have this mission, this desire to fulfill God's picture of unity and a bond of peace. And how do you do that? Now, um, what I didn't want to communicate, and I hope I didn't, I just want to clarify this, is if you have interest in political things, that's not the problem. In fact, I think as a good citizen, you should vote. You should be involved. In, you, should, you can talk to your congressman. Do it politely. Send emails. I've done it before. Just tell them your opinion and why. Cause them to think about the issue from your point of view. Some of you may even run for a political office someday. God lays that on your heart to do. Nothing wrong with any of that. My biggest concern in this area right now is how we're talking to each other. In the book of 1 John, uh, John writes a lot about God's love. And in chapter 4, the second half of chapter 4, he talks about how that love that God has for us changes us. And this is one of the things that he says in verse 11, chapter, verse, 1 John 4, 11. Dear friends... Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I, I can find no exemption based on somebody who holds a different political position than you that you no longer have to love that person. In fact, you'll find that in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, that he actually ups the ante. I'm going to read it off the screen because I like this translation, the ESV better, a little more literal. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And so when this division starts to impact our families and our friends, it is so far from the picture that God had in mind for us. It's so far from this picture of love and grace that we're supposed to put on display for a world that shows us unified in a bond of peace. And yet, that seems to be what's happening in our churches, in our lives right now. I think, I think maybe you don't understand how valuable the church's role is. So let me see if I can paint the picture this way. Um, God gave us government uh, for some very specific things. Uh, they have a primary role. And the primary role that they have is to create laws 
around safety and protection. And, and they, you can't have a society, you can't have a community unless you have some shared values that are held together by some things that then are held accountable. Somebody holds us accountable for those. That's what the laws do. And the government is designed to make those kind of standards and then hold people to it. It's, it's a really beneficial thing. It's why God loves order, because he wants to find a way for communities to exist. But let's take, for instance, a specific issue um, like racial discrimination. Uh, the government comes and makes laws based on racial discrimination. They'll say, uh, you can't use this for hiring. You can't use this for housing. You can't use it. And they'll make a list of things, and they should. Those laws should be in place um, for protection, and they should enforce them. But here's the problem with laws. A law expects you to do the minimum to be okay, which means all you have to do is not simply hire somebody for that reason, not withdraw your housing for based on race, but you can rent them your house and still hate their guts because the law can't change that. The church has a completely different mission. Our mission says, listen, we're about the hearts and minds of people. When people choose to follow Jesus, we give him everything. And he takes that and he changes the way we think. He changes the way we reason. He changes the way we live and actually do stuff. Our thoughts come under his purview. He says, no, I don't want you to think that way anymore. And we're changed from the inside out. And our role in society is important. I don't know if you know this. In Romans chapter 2, this is often quoted verse, but I want you to understand how important it is. This, um, Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I'm going to change you from the inside out. And it goes on to say, this is good and pleasing. This is how you, this is how you get to the perfect will of God. You're being changed from the inside out. And the, the writers, our founding fathers, the writers of the Constitution, they understood how valuable this was. Even Thomas Jefferson, who was not a follower of Jesus, said this. I want you to see this. He said, the reason that Christianity is the best friend of government is because Christianity is the only religion that changes the heart. Not a follower of Jesus, but recognized that our role was to go to that person who had that prejudice and say, you might be following the law, but this does not honor God. You're out of bounds there. And we become a part of the process that changes things. Now let's say, now let's say you grab all of those kind of big ideas that you accept um, that order, that we, we want order to come about and we're all arguing for order and so you give somebody some grace on that. You, you acknowledge that maybe they want the best even though they're completely wrong. They're arguing because they believe that's the best thing and so you grant them some grace there and you want the church to be the church and yet you feel stuck because the idea that you're arguing about is big. Life and death big. And it feels like you're just giving up and not doing anything if all you say is, well, I guess we're just going to agree to disagree and nothing's going to change, nothing's going to be different and people get frustrated with that. How, what are we supposed to do? 
just disagree about everything and everything's fine? What happens when it's life or death? These are high stakes. How do we find a way to act? Because right now in our country, people are acting and they're not acting well. So what I'd like to do this morning, I'd like to suggest that there are three things that you'll have to work through in order to get to a place where you could actually do something. And so I, I, um, what I'm going to do is we're going to take a real life issue because what could go wrong, right? We'll just, um, we'll take something like that and um, we'll, we'll take it out of the headlines. It would be easier for me, honestly, if I just used a hypothetical idea. But I want to take something out of the headlines and walk you through it because it's going to be hard and it's going to be uncomfortable. But I hope you'll listen to the whole thing because you're going to be tempted to think that I'm trying to be political and I'm not. I want you to listen towards the end of each kind of segment. I'm going to highlight what I think the real problem is. And then um, we'll kind of pack this back in together. And I hope I can give you a structure to walk through that if you do that, you can take an issue that you're contentious on with somebody and find a way through to the other side where you could actually do something, okay? So we're going to take the issue of refugees. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but this has been in the news um, just a little bit over the last six months. And, and I want to take and walk you through how I think we could get to the other side of this issue together. All right? Um, still probably having disagreements. Now, the first thing um, that I'm convinced has to be done is that you have to recognize that both sides have an agenda that they've politicized in this thing. And that if you're not careful, you'll get drawn into the politics of it. People have an agenda. They want people worked up, fighting for that agenda. And unless you can recognize that that's happening, you're going to be in trouble. I don't know if you do this or not. I don't go to a single news site without understanding the agenda that they're going to present before I read the news anymore. It's gotten, that, it's gotten to that place for me where I need to know what you think before you say it because I have to filter what you're saying to actually get to some level of truth because everybody has an agenda. Now, in case uh, you don't think that's um, right, I want to walk you through some stuff. I'm going to do this for both sides, so hang with me. I'm not even convinced that most of us know what a refugee is. There's actually a legal definition for it um, that's out there, and I, I got it so you can look at, you can read the whole thing through, but I highlighted the one part that I wanted you to look at. There's a well-founded fear of persecution, and they leave their hometown, they leave their country, and they go somewhere else because... They're afraid for their lives or the persecution is going to be so serious that somebody's going to be harmed. And they go to a border country and they live there instead, waiting for things to calm down in their country. Based on this definition right here, have any idea how many people in our world right now, I can only give you an estimate, right now are living under this definition. They're not in their home country. They have fled for fear of persecution. It's 21.3 million people. 21.3 million people right now, as we sit here, 
are living somewhere in a tent camp, or that's even generous for some of them, who are fleeing, trying to survive in fear of death or persecution of some sort. Now, now here's the thing. 99% of those will never apply to go to a different country. It's around 98%. 98% will never go, apply to go to a different country. Do you know why? Because they want to go home. They want things to calm down enough they can go back to the place that they were raised. They can go back to the town that they were from. That they can go back to a culture that they understand and know. They, they want to go back to that. And there's a group who apply to go and settle somewhere else. It's 1% who get accepted every year. It's about 1% of this group. And for the last 30 years, the United States of America has taken in Two-thirds of 1% of that number. That's the average annual basis. So that number, 21.3, fluctuates up and down. Out of that 1%, we've taken two-thirds of those people. That's been, that's been a pretty generous thing, I think, that we've done. Oh, since the 80s, 3 million refugees have come into our country. Now, these are big numbers until you realize there's 21.3 million people who are in that kind of state. But remember, 99% aren't looking to come here. Where this started to get heated up is when um, uh, President Trump changed the ceiling, which, by the way, is the president's prerogative. They've, they've done it for the last 30 years. They move it up and down. It's at 50,000 right now. It's been 50,000 in years past. It's a pretty common number. When President Obama came in, he moved it up to 70,000. And in 2016, he moved it up to 110,000, although it never, ever got close to that many um, refugees coming in. Never got close to the 100,000 mark. Still in the 70,000s range. And what happened is when that number got moved down, everybody got fired up about that. Um, and and this, is, this has happened all along. And what they didn't understand uh, was some of the stuff that was happening behind the scenes. So 2016, 2016, what, what's been in the news is Syrian refugees. And in 2016, 12,567 Syrian refugees were led in our country. Out of that cap of 110,000, which ended up being in the 70,000s that were actually led in. Now here's the thing. I, I'm not convinced that our country actually cares that deeply about this issue or knows much about this issue because that same year, there were more people from another country that came to the U.S., in fact, it was 16,370 from a different country, refugees. Do you know who they came from? Most of us won't. It was the Dominican Republic of Congo, the DRC. And the only thing that's right about that name is the Congo. Everything else does not describe who they are because the people in their country who are fleeing, Syrians are fleeing because groups are fighting each other, the government and rebels and ISIS, they're all like a triangle of fighting. And you could get killed in the crossfire of that. In the Congo, 
The people are the target. And over a million of them have fled out of their country just trying to survive. Men, women, and kids will be killed on sight if they're caught. Did you know that? I had no idea that that was going on. And I want to suggest to you that this has become politicized and we've missed the big picture. In fact, I think I can prove it just a little bit more. Because if you take a step back and you look at the last five years, Syrian refugees um, came into our country. In 2011 is when the Syrian um, disruption started. A million people left the country that year fled and went into some other country, a million. Now, it takes a little while. It takes a little while to vet them and go through that process, but in 2012, 41 people were let in from Syria. In 2013, 45. 2014, 249. Starts to pick up a little bit, but listen, if I were to tell you this next year that Donald Trump is gonna set the number of refugees from Syria at 42 or 43, what you would tell me is that's a ban. That's a, that's, it might as well be a ban. And, and I want to suggest to you that that was a ban. And if people are upset about it, they're five years too late. They, they missed it. And the reason I think, it's not a political comment, the reason I think they weren't angry and upset about it five years ago is because they're just like me. I didn't know and if I were being truthful, I didn't really care that much about refugees. I had a good life. I never investigated it. I, I, I wasn't trying to find out what was going on in the lives of people around the world. I mean, we did stuff in our own country, but I wasn't looking out there for that. And I think as a whole, our country was that way. And they have gotten fired up and upset because I think things have been politicized. If they would have been passionate about this the whole time, they would have made a fuss all the way back then. Now listen, same thing's happening on the other side of the aisle. Because we've had three million people come into our country as, as refugees. And from the 80s till now. And do you know how many terror attacks have resulted in the deaths of United States citizens from refugees who've come to this country. Do you know how many? Zero. Do you know why? Because the vetting process is rough. I told you, um, uh, well, I probably didn't tell you. The United Nations starts the process. They take applications, and then they hand them to the U.S. Out of all of those applications that are handed to the U.S., our vetting process cancels out half of them at a time. They have three or four different departments who snoop around in their lives. It takes 18 months at a minimum to do. And there's a whole series of processes that you have to go through. Listen, if you want to come to America and harm somebody... There are easier ways to do it than this. There are easier ways than to have somebody digging around in your life looking for what's going on with you. And in fact, if you look at 9-11, Boston bombing, the foreign people who came in from other countries came in on travel visas, not as refugees. And there haven't, there haven't been attacks. 
Now, where there has been a concern, I've heard bigger numbers, but I'm only going to use what I could verify myself. And so this is just the last six years. In the last six years, there have been arrests made of people who, were, who came in on refugee status who were planning a terror attack. Do you know how many? We'll put that up. Ten. And this is really important for you to hear. What the authorities determine in every one of these cases is that they became radicalized after they came to the U.S., not before. They ran into a cleric here. They got sucked in on a website from overseas, and they became radicalized here. In fact, I would say we kind of let people down. We didn't, we didn't integrate them into our culture well enough. Now, now listen, just, just look at the numbers. In, in those seven, six years, 350,000 people came in as refugees. That's the number of people who were arrested. It's just not many. And, and our fear of this is what's, is what's kind of controlled the issue. People have blown this up, and we don't, know the, we don't know the facts of what's happened. We don't understand the vetting process. We don't know what's all, all. I'm not arguing one way or the other. Should there be more? Should there be less? I'm not, I'm not going to argue for that. What, what I'm suggesting to you is that it's been so politicized that most of us don't even know the facts to have a conversation with each other about this. And we've not realized that it's been politicized to draw us into a fight to get us upset about stuff so that we won't even hear each other. So one, you have to realize that this stuff has been politicized. And then the second thing I think we have to do, the problem, okay, we're working through. If we can do these things, then maybe we can do something. The second thing is to realize um, that the government doesn't have to have your values and probably shouldn't. Um, government was assigned a primary role. They make laws, they keep order, they have our safety and security in mind. That's their primary job. The church's job, if you look through the scriptures, you would have to, you would have to understand that compassion is huge for us. It's, it's got to drive who we are and what we do. But what, what takes place is we say, we're supposed to be compassionate, and we demand that our government has the same kind of values as we are, and we forget this. Our government is not a Christian institution. It was never intended to be a Christian institution. The founding fathers who were followers of Jesus were smart about this. They did not want the civil government determining what your religious beliefs should be. And so they decided to keep that separate. John Adams, who was a follower of Jesus, said this about our government. As the government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion, the United States is not a Christian nation anymore that it is a Jewish or Mohammedan nation. I know I said that wrong, but I can't get it right. It, it's not. And so when we go to it and demand that it has our values or it's not really an effective nation, what you can do is you can push it to make mistakes. You can undermine its very purpose in the first place, which is creating laws and order and safety and security. 
It's not compassion. That's not its first goal. Now listen, we should be able to influence our government, but to demand that it has our values is a huge mistake. Um, Andrew, um, Andrew, Alexander Hamilton uh, made this statement as well. I want to read this. He said, remember, civil and religious liberty always go together. If the foundation of the one is sapped, the other will fall, of course. And, and, you, and we understand this because we're on the religious side, and we're like, yes, we have to have our religious freedom. But do you understand it works the other way too? That the civil government can't adopt a Christian position and then force everybody to do that, that it would not be right for that to happen. Because what happens if that's allowed to happen with a different religion? They were really brilliant about this. And they said, listen, you have a job to do. You create laws based on security. You keep order. And, I, and just in my opinion, three million refugees over a chunk of time and not a, zero, seri, <laughs> not a single person killed from them, they seem to be doing a good job. So should there be more? Should there be less? I don't know. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure how that's supposed to go. But I want to be careful that we're not demanding that the government has to have our value in order to do its job properly. Now, here's what, here's what happens. When the government doesn't have our values, uh, we end up feeling a sense of hopelessness. So in this instance, um, when it was moved from 110,000 down to 50,000, and there was nothing that you could do about that because the president has the prerogative to do that. The sense of frustration that people had was there's nothing we can do about that. We've got to change our government if we're going to accomplish anything. And that's the third thing that I want to address, is that you become convinced that without the government, nothing can be done, that you're hopeless. And so you, you want them to have your values, and when they don't, then you feel a sense of hopelessness, and you're like, I have to be active, involved, if I'm going to get anything done. And so the rage and the intensity goes up, and you never consider that you actually could do something without the government. Because our role as followers of Jesus call us to be compassionate, and you could act. In fact, here's what I'd like to suggest. If you can figure out that, hey, they're pitting us against this politically, I want to stop this. I'm not going to expect the government to have my values, and I'm not going to sit here and feel hopeless. So what can I do? You could look at that person that you're having an argument with and say, do you realize that 99% of the people who are refugees that you're concerned about, that I'm concerned about, are living in some of the most difficult conditions in the world? So how about if I sponsor a kid and you sponsor a kid, and let's do this together? Let's get past all of this and let's go do some. You could find an organization like Samaritan's Purse. Samaritan's Purse has a Christian organization that has from 2011 been helping Syrian refugees. In fact, they're all over the world where, where refugees are at. They're there helping provide food, helping provide education, helping provide security and safety for people. So if you wanted to get involved, that's what's so great about living in a country that understands that you can have some freedoms. You could send your money 
to an organization that would actually do something and you could make a difference and you could pull that other person in with you. You could do it together. And instead of being at conflict with each other, you could find a way forward. Let's, let's do this together. If you wanted to specifically do something for somebody in Syria, there's a great organization called Heart for Lebanon. Uh, they're doing some pretty incredible things there where they're actually educating Christian and Muslim kids in the same classroom so they learn to respect and care for each other. They're trying to change the temperature of the whole thing. But they're taking care of kids. They're taking care of adults. They're feeding them. They're providing protection. And if you wanted to do something, you could. You could do something. The, The other thing that you could do is that you could look for organizations in the U.S. that are actively helping immigrants and refugees settle here. And you could help expose them to the values of our country and to the values of our community. That they should see the love and grace as we get involved with them because that could shape who they are. About three months ago, uh, something came across my desk and I thought, man, we have to do this. Um, Habitat for Humanity uh, is planning to build a home in the Middlebury area. They've bought the land. The plans are being drawn up. And, uh, and Habitat has identified a family that needs help. And then the project got delayed, and I got excited because I realized I could actually talk about it here. I, um, it's an immigrant family from Ukraine that fled under religious persecution. They have nine kids I said that right. Yeah. I think if I would have gotten any further past five kids with my wife, I'd be living in the basement right now in some corner. You, go downstairs, right? That's crazy. But here's the opportunity that we have. We have an opportunity to get involved with this build and actually do something together. We can disagree on how many people should come in or be let in, but they're here And we could do something. We could do something for our whole community to see. So Waypoint has already committed $10,000 from the general fund for this project. About a month ago, uh, a couple uh, kind of pulled me aside and said, hey, Blair, we're thinking about making a donation uh, to Waypoint. You want to get together and talk? And I'm like, yeah. I mean, we're a church. We survive on people giving us money. When would you like to meet, right? And as we sat down and talked, I realized that Waypoint was the wrong recipient. And, um, and what we decided to do together was we decided to create a matching gift fund. And uh, the house cost $55,000 to build. It's $55 per square foot. And, um, and they've set aside $15,000 to match dollar for dollar everything that we give. If you wanted to give $55 per square foot, if if Waypoint came together and gave 272 square feet, we'd have $15,000. They'd match it. We'd then have $40,000 for a $55,000 project. And it's not just our money that we're looking for. The build's going to start in September and October and November, and I'm going to ask you to be a part of it. I'm going to ask you to bring your family. I'm going to ask you to bring your friends and your coworkers. Why? Because I want 
the world to see what the church looks like when we're the church. When we decide to put aside our disagreements and we do something that matters, that makes a difference on the issue that we're having a disagreement on, we can do this. This can be a part of the legacy that we write for our community. This is the church. 1 John 3.17 says it so beautifully. Again, I like the other translation. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in needs, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? That's who we are. So we're going to step into this project and we're going to give it our best. And I hope as you do that you'll be able to see that we might not be able to agree on the politics but we can agree that we can do something. The government doesn't have to have our position for us to act. We can and should act as the church. And I hope this will be the beginning of many moments where instead of being divided, the world sees us united with a bond of peace. Let me pray with you. God, you have really high dream of what you want to accomplish with your people. Unity, a bond of peace. And yet there are so many things that we disagree on. But I ask that you would help us rally. Rally to your cause, rally to your kingdom. And that we would use these common things to bind us together, that the division that we see in our world would not be seen here and that people would realize that the church, their hearts are different and that we would be a place where people's hearts would be changed. I ask that you would start a ripple with us that will have effect on those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. It turns out this idea has, is not new to Waypoint. Uh, we've been doing this for years in a lot of different ways where we've come together as a body who's really diverse and different and we've gone out and we've served. So I'd, I'd love for you to take a look at some of the past things that we've done. The song our God.
We pray this all in your name. Amen.